right. Well, Chris, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate your time. Um, I know you're in New York right now. I was just actually I was checking your Instagram, and you were at the uh, Monday Night Football game yesterday between uh, Patriots and, and uh, New York. Was that your first uh, NFL experience? No, no, I've done some more uh, before. Yeah, apologies for any background out there. I've stuck a coffee shop just to find somewhere with actually with daylight. But, um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty lively. Yeah, Manhattan's not going to be a quiet place, is it? Uh, no, I went to... Uh, my first football game was back in 2014 when the uh, F1 photographers, a guy called JB Price, was a big Panthers fan, and uh, he took me to the game, and I got me hooked. So I'm a Panthers fan, but with the timing and the chance to see Brady at MetLife, um, I was with one of the guys from ESPN who really wanted to go, so we went yesterday, and uh, yeah, it's a bit of a bloodbath, to be honest. It was uh, not much of a contest, but um, it was impressive to watch Brady, and uh, it, it helped. It meant the stadium cleared out before we needed to leave, so we, we got away quicker. But, um, yeah, no, really, really cool, really cool uh, event to go to. And, of course, you'll be on your way to Mexico after this. And we're 17 races down, only a couple more to go. Are you, you know, as it gets to the end of the season, are you looking forward to some time off? I know you're really busy flying from Japan, one end of the earth to the other. So you kind of looking for some uh, time off? A, a little. I mean, I, I try not to ever complain because it's just incredible. And I can't, certainly can't moan when I'm, in New York for a couple of days before a race. Um, but it, it is flat out. It is always working. I've been sat in a hotel room for most of the last few days doing work. Um, and it's nice to get to one place for a, a little bit of time. But realistically, I can choose how much time off I, I take between races in terms of being in one place. So Japan was awesome. I went out a bit early watching the Rugby World Cup that was on there and came back a day later than normal just to explore Tokyo a bit more. And then uh, had a weekend with family. Um, my mum's birthday, which was nice, and then headed straight out here early for New York. So if I really wanted to, I could have I could have made that a longer stay at home. But uh, yeah, it's, it kind of comes to the territory, and I, I'm lucky with what I do. I manage to uh, work remotely a lot of the time. So if I'm not at a race, uh, I can work wherever I want, essentially. So uh, that really helps. Uh, you don't then feel too stressed by it. But yeah, it'd be quite nice when the season's over just to recharge the batteries a little. And it's strange because you get to the end, and normally everyone gets ill. Everyone gets a cold. I've got one coming on now. Uh, you stop and you're not used to stopping, but within a week or two, you're suddenly ready to go again. So, um, yeah, I'm sure it'll be, it'll feel like a long off season. It always does. And, uh, and then we'll go into a record breaking calendar next year. Yeah. I'm actually kind of glad that you brought that up because it was finalized not too many weeks ago. And you look at the schedule and it's super packed. There's a lot more back to backs than there were this year. And for fans, like for us, you know, it's great because we get F1, we get 22 races, but for the other side of things, the journalists, the broadcast crew, all the logistics people and the teams, I mean, that must be a big challenge next year because that's going to be, as Max Verstappen put it, you know, a lot of the guys can file divorce right now because they're going to be gone for, you know, the majority of the year. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's really tough on, especially some of the guys like the mechanics, the hours that they work, um, Quite a few of them are very much work hard, play hard, but you know I don't know how they do it on so little sleep. But the hours they're working the circuit is huge, and then you've got to think of the logistics side, the, the amount of team members that to get there, set up the garages, set up the hospitality units. Uh, then you've got the hospitality team, so some of the catering teams, they've got to be in before the rest of the team get in in the morning. They've got to be there until after the rest of the team leave at night. The, the hours they pull are ridiculous. So to do that 22 times this year, plus testing uh, in February as well. It's really, really long. Uh, testing one that I think people overlook sometimes, but you have like no curfew with that. So you have a day shift and a night shift, and, and they're working throughout the whole test 24-7. Uh, so that means you've got to have a hospitality team there that whole time as well to feed them and 
it's quite interesting. You see a crossover where it's breakfast and uh, you've got the night shift finishing and they have kind of breakfast before leaving and the day shift arriving. And that's when they can have some of their meetings and talk about you know, what, what the car's been doing during the day on track and then the work they've done overnight. So uh, it's, it is a brutal schedule. And that's one of the reasons uh, that with some of these meetings, they've been talking about changing the race weekend format, not just to do something that's more exciting for the fans, but seeing if they can make it a little bit more efficient for the team so they can get a, get to a venue a day later, essentially. And that just buys them a bit more time when it's when it's so busy. And are they going to be looking to increase any of the allocated engines and engine components for the 22 race schedule? Because it's currently at three for 21 races. And you got to think that with 22 races and a couple of the in-season tests, I'm assuming that will remain. I mean, that must be a lot that's going to focus on reliability and kind of strategically also for the teams as well. Yeah, I think it looks like it's going to stay the same. This was asked, I think, to Andreas Seidel at one of the races recently. Uh, and he seemed to suggest it was going to stay at, at the three that they've currently got. Um, that was mainly, I think, because they've tried to introduce it to make sure that these engines do that distance. And essentially, if, if you add one more race, it's across three engines. It's a little bit more you have to use each one to make up that difference. And, and they feel like F1 should be at a level that it can draw that out. Plus, with the fact that we've got uh, a day of testing left, uh, on each of the pre-season tests. I think we're going to do away with the in-season testing, it looks like, as well. Um, I'll limit that. So there'll be a little bit less track time that the teams are working with, so some of the engines won't have to do quite so much. But um, really, yeah, we've, we've seen it this year. Teams are still picking up penalties. If, if you've got an unreliable engine, you're going to be getting penalties anyway later in the season. And there's certain, certain venues where it's not actually quite so painful. I also think, Sometimes it, it adds quite a cool element into the mix because you get a, a driver well out of position and you get a much faster car trying to come through the field. Uh, and I think that's quite cool to see. Sometimes you get it at a venue that wouldn't be particularly exciting or if qualifying had gone as planned, everyone would be in pace order and would just have a bit of a procession. So I don't always think it's the worst thing in the world. And, and if an engine manufacturer needs to be introducing more components, they can still do so. You just take the good penalty and, and hopefully you don't get the performance benefit from the new engine anyway. Yeah, and this kind of ties into one of the main reasons why I wanted to to talk to you today was the 2021 regulations. And although we're, you know, kind of around two years away or so from that season, it's still very relevant today because the deadline is coming up at the end of this month. There was the big meeting in Paris last week. So we kind of wanted to have you on to, because a lot of our, our viewers are asking us, you know, we don't talk too much about the 2021 regulations because there's always so many reports coming out about this is proposed, this got axed. So there's a lot of kind of confusion, but I, I wanted to kind of start with and just ask, what, what's the status following the meeting last week? And do you think that the, the regulations will be out on time for October 31st? I, I think they're going to have to be, to be honest. This is already a delayed set of regulations that um, they were discussing because the FIA and F1 could have forced through some much earlier this year. And there was some meetings in the summer where they all agreed, okay, we'd like a bit more time to develop certain aspects of the regulations. The teams themselves... I think we're hoping to push it back so that they could then have a bit of a bigger say and a bit more time to give feedback to the FIA and to F1 as well. And also then, the later you did it, the, the thinking was then it's less time for the bigger teams to get a head start. You know, they, the, the impact of their additional finances might be lessened. Not too sure that's actually going to be the case because they can still commit more people to the project and, and spend more money on it um, whenever you do it. So they're, they're still going to gain in that sense. So I think we're still going to hit this deadline. Uh, what seems to have changed is the recent meetings we've had, the one in Paris that you referenced, has allowed some of the teams to push back on certain areas where they were unhappy, where everyone finalised some of the, the changes and were a bit too prescriptive in their eyes. So 
where some of the teams felt the cars would all be too similar, there wouldn't be room to innovate, there wouldn't be room to develop your own concepts. Uh, they they sort of hit back. So after meetings of basically every race for the last three, four weeks, uh, there's always been talking back and forth and questionnaires going around about what are we happy with, what are we not. And I think there was just consensus on certain items where all of the teams, or at least most of them, said, no, we're not going to go ahead with this. We, we've seen the FIA and F1 have to sort of back off a bit in certain areas. Uh, brakes were one of them that they were going to make uh, standardized materials and then they changed that recently and said, okay, we're going to delay that. Uh, but what's interesting is none of it's off the table. Formula One has kind of gone, okay, we'll try and get to a point here that all the teams are happy enough with 2021, but then we'll keep moving forward in the future and maybe bring in more standard parts or the budget cap that we're talking about, bring that level uh, and, and bring in an initial level and then, and then lower it in future years to try and really restrict things. So it's not 2021 and that's it. And that's what Formula One's been trying to push and trying to stress. Uh, but it does mean the teams have had this window to kind of push back. And the whole reason is they're trying to protect their competitive advantage. It's always the case. So the big teams don't want to give up the fact that they are currently the leading teams and they want to protect certain things. It's, it's no surprise we had six teams that said they would rather just stick with what we've got now than change to 2021 a few weeks ago. Um, that was before this meeting. So this meeting allowed them to talk about some of the concerns they had or some of the areas they weren't willing to concede. Uh, but at that point, you know, they are the big teams that were against it. And it was the more independent teams that were saying, no, we're, we're willing to, we're willing to go with the, the new regulations. We want change because these changes might give us more of an opportunity. So, uh, yeah, it's it, it a state of flux regardless. We've seen it time and time again in Formula One. It's kind of, um, almost sadly, uh, predictable, but you never get everyone on site. You never get everyone to agree. There'll be, there'll be members of the FIA that aren't happy with the rules. There'll be members of F1 that aren't happy with the compromises. Teams will be unhappy with certain sections, and eventually someone has to say, this is it, just take it or leave it. At the end of the day, we still get some very cool cars that go very quickly. You just have to work within those regulations. Yeah, and like you mentioned, it seemed like a lot of the teams wanted to, the six teams that you mentioned, wanted to keep that sort of aerodynamic flexibility of being able to go crazy with the cars and design it the way they want. And like you mentioned, the gearboxes wanted to be standardized. I think they scrapped that, some of the brake uh, systems as well. Um you know, would it kind of almost be better though to have it have it standardized? Would that bring the field a little bit closer, or w- would it make things cheaper with, with the budget cap? I mean, w- what's your sense on that from inside the paddock? Do you think that that would make the racing overall a little bit better and kind of limit the competitive advantage of the likes of Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull? Personally, I do, but I, I kind of see where the argument lies in that you then risk. We talk about the DNA of Formula One and we have got to protect it in some form. I think some people go a bit too far and try and protect it because they say, well, Formula One's always been this way, but that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. You know, to improve and evolve, sometimes you've got to make tough decisions, but you've also got to look at what do the fans want, what's really going to get people excited. And yeah, the technological side is very cool. The kind of diversity across the cars is very cool, but if you then don't get good racing, people are going to switch off. They're going to turn on and look at the cars in a photo and go, that looks cool. And then they're going to watch the first two laps and go, well, this is boring and, and go and watch something else. So I think certainly standardization would create better racing because you can really control then where the performance differentiators are and you can make it that one, the car's much more raceable, which was one of the key objectives of the regulation changes. But two, you just, you're kind of making sure the window of difference is much, much smaller. And right now where... Uh, a team with a bigger budget is able to find maybe up to two seconds of performance over a team with a smaller one. 
you're just kind of limiting that window so that they can only find two cents. And they'll still find those two cents by spending that money. But it just keeps everyone a lot, lot closer. I think what's key is getting the racing cars, though. And the teams themselves, you know, the engineers are not thinking about the show and how great the racing looks like, the way we talk about it. They are thinking about, you know, how exciting is their job going to be in, in designing these cars and building these cars. And it was the same with the drivers in 2017. They were asking for cars that were tougher to drive, that they were tired afterwards, pushed harder for longer. And they said that's what they really want because they said, oh, you know, fans will love it when we get out the car and we look exhausted and they see we've worked hard. But then you get cars that can't follow so closely because there's more downforce and you get the certain races. And just because the driver's happy, 100,000 people sat in the grandstand maybe aren't because they're not the ones in their feet. And it was Jen from Dutton, I think, when he retired, who admitted, yeah, basically people were wrong to listen to us as drivers because what we want isn't necessarily what's better for the sport. Um, some, some aspects are, you know, don't get me wrong, but others not so much. So, um, we're kind of in this window where getting the balance right is, is key, but realistically, it's gonna, you're gonna have to upset some people. You're gonna have to say right to the team, yeah, we're gonna be really prescriptive, but deal with it. If you're the best rating team, you're gonna win or you'll do well. Uh, and it's no surprise to see people like McLaren going to race an IndyCar because they feel that that's an opportunity to showcase their racing skill on a more level playing field. Um, but, the way you can end up with that is, okay, if you want to be an IndyCar, be an IndyCar, you want to be an F1, be an F1. If you want to do both, do both. You kind of give the, the two options. So uh, it's a really fine line that, that we're working with right now. But I, I think we're never going to get everyone on the same page and everyone happy. Formula One itself needs to look at what do we think is going to work best in this sport. It's going to make it profitable. It's going to make it exciting. It's going to make fans watch it. And if you get those core things right, then all the other dissent, that will fade away when you've got some great races. Yeah, we. I mean, it's definitely right. We're never going to have it perfect. You're never going to be able to please everybody. But when the the Sauber wind tunnel model came out in in August, and it, it seemed really positive. It seemed like there was a lot of excitement. They said that through the CFD models, they were only going to lose five percent downforce when following other cars. Which is obviously, if it's true, it's very good news for for overall racing in the show. But I, I kind of feel like since then, it, the the response from some of the teams it hasn't been so positive. And we've had a lot of this back and forth about where we want to go with the sport. And you sort of hear things, read things on Twitter that 2021 might not be such a massive change as we're kind of expecting. It's going to be a little bit more of the same. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one because I think that's where the teams have been allowed to push back a bit too much. And they're using this opportunity with a delay. Like you said, we, we saw the work that's been done in the Starbuck Wind Tunnel, and it's really impressive. Um, I, I think that the car is pretty cool. Of course, they would, they'd all be slightly different, but not massively different compared to, uh, to each other because of how restricted the, the regulations are. But they're still, you know, good looking racing cars and they're going to be damn fast. And with the engines you've got in there, they're going to be good. Um, they'd also be tough to drive with, with less downforce, which is again, something we say we want to see from the drivers. But I think a lot of the teams, when they agreed to the delay to October, they all said that's not so we can scupper these or change this massively. It's just to make sure it's developed fully. And then you get to October and it looks like they are trying to really scupper it and, and um, limit how much change there is. And I, I asked Andrea Seidel this question actually in, uh, in Japan. I said, are you surprised? You know, everyone said that's not going to happen. And now it is. And he's like, no, it's not quite cool. He said, everyone's just defending their own little patch of land. He said, from the same point of view as McLaren, they've got their own uh, outlook and their own area that they want to look after and, and the way they see their business model working, the way they want to be as a team. So their opinion is different to other teams' opinions. And he said it's always going to be like that. Um, I think essentially Ross Braun wanted to be very hard 
handed and say, this is, these are the rules. We're going to give you them right now. Take it or leave it. But the longer it goes on and the more teams get unhappy or they're threats. I mean, um, Ferrari obviously have a veto if they really wanted to use it. I, I don't believe they will, but it, it is there. Uh, and if, if that threat starts getting mentioned, suddenly Formula One's worried, well, what happens if we try and impose these rules and then the teams say no? Then you're in huge trouble. You know, what, you've lost control of your own sport. So, so then there's always going to be some wariness there. If, you know, it's not just down to Ross to say these are the rules, that's it, because he's got bosses to look after, shareholders to keep happy as well. The FIA, Jean Todd, always wants to keep as many people happy as possible. Not always the way to go, I think, but you can understand what he's trying to do because it's only 10 teams in the sport and you, you want to make sure it's working for everybody as best as possible. Uh, so I think the teams have been able to give this pushback and, and dilute the rules a little bit. But that's where I think Braun is probably playing a bit of a longer game and going, okay, like on the actual technical regulations, fine, we can, we can change those a bit and maybe they won't be so radical. But the cost cap is huge and that's what basically every smaller team is saying that's got to come in. Whatever we do, the cost cap has to come in and it looks like it will. So as long as that happens, then they think, okay, that would naturally bring everyone a bit closer. From that, you can make it even tighter in a few years and, and bring everyone closer still. But also then you can just start to impose regulations sort of changes that maybe will save money because then the team's like, great, we've got more money within the cost cap to pay with. And right now, that doesn't matter quite so much because they've got this freedom. So until you actually make it impact on them, until it starts to happen, while you're just talking about it at this stage, it's all hypothetical. The teams aren't quite feeling that pressure and that pinch. So I think Gordon's playing a bit of a longer game there where, yeah, potentially 2021 won't be as radical as it could have been, but it will be the first step. And it's, it's something he's, uh, Ross Gordon said a number of times that it's, it's not the be all and end all. This is just us trying to get everyone on the right path. Yeah, for sure. And I think the cost cap, what you brought up is, is very important because since we moved to the turbo hybrid era in 2014, only three teams have won races in this era. Whereas you look at before in the, in the V8s and the V10 era, you had five, maybe six teams were able to win a race here and there. And, you know, the competition isn't as close as it maybe once was in different eras. So, so like you said, it looks like they are going to be going with that cost cap for 2021. And, and that seems like it's really good news for fans as well. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it is massively important because, as you say, I mean, Toro Rosso, the only team this year to, to get on the podium outside the top three. I don't think we had anyone outside the top three on the podium last year. I'm just trying to make sure I've got that one right. But obviously, Racing Point slash Force India were every now and then popping up previous to that. And, and Williams, well, managed to get on a few times. But it's been so, so rare. And it just shows that there's just a huge, huge difference between the teams. But also, it's... Certain areas kind of feed these problems. And we were talking at the start of this about reliability and, you know, the engines and where you try and make them go over 22 races with three of them. But of course, if you create great reliability, then you lose that unpredictability and the chance of a race where someone can luck into a podium because four of the top six will retire. Um, you need crazy conditions now to make that happen or a big crash rather than, you know, just an engine goes bang or something like that. That, that element disappeared. And we've got to remember that because in a sense, you can't go back. You can't change the regulation now to, to reintroduce massive unreliability. And similarly, you then can't blame the aerodynamic regulation for the fact that you're not getting uh, random teams on the podium. You know, it's just something that kind of the sport has evolved. And that's why other areas have to be addressed. But it, there's no quick fix for them. So um, it's definitely something that, that does need addressing, though, because, as you say, uh, there's... I talk quite a lot, obviously, having worked on the on the Netflix documentary last year, and people just didn't even appreciate the effort that the smaller teams go into. Like, how much money, obviously, is involved, but 
you know, the, the time, the dedication, the characters within those teams, they never get a look in because they weren't on the podium. They weren't, they weren't the guys you were talking about winning races. So you weren't seeing them on TV so much. You weren't hearing from them. And as a casual fan, a lot of them just weren't that interested in them because they didn't factor in the race so heavily. Then they got to hear their story a bit more and kind of appreciate it. I'm like, well, these guys are cool. You know, so I, I like some of the characters that are here or, uh, some of the drivers that are at these other teams. And it does help when you get someone like Daniel Ricciardo leaving Red Bull, going to Renault and trying to take a team back up towards the front there and to uh, upset that top three. But suddenly you, you realize that, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to it and that these teams really, they need rewarding for, for the amount of time, effort, money that it goes into just compete in this sport. They need a bit more of an opportunity than they're getting. I think it was, I'm not sure if it was you that said it in the Netflix series. I believe it was the first episode. It might have been you or Will Buxton when, you know, you just blatantly said to win in Formula One, you need money. And it was, it was as frank as that. And it's true, though. And like you said, a lot of the, the casual fans, especially here in North America, because obviously in North America, F1, not as popular. Netflix series helped a lot with that. I was reading some numbers in, in America. I think Canada here as well a little bit. But I think the series was great just to showcase that behind the scenes look, but just to see how much work goes into it. And you look at somebody like Williams this year, for example, the amount of money and work that's being put into just finishing 19th and 20th at most race weekends and celebrating 15th as if it's a top five finished in certain races. So it, it really is crazy when you can kind of show that side of the sport to the non, uh, you know, non F1 fan that's watching. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you mentioned the impact. Uh, I did interview with Bobby Epstein, the, the CEO of COTA, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said they're on to their second highest attendance, it looks like, um, that they've ever had there. Obviously, the first race being the highest, um, which is always the case with all new races. People want to come and see it and um, kind of experience when, a, when you get that first race buzz. He said it's always hard after that, but they're really amazed they're getting such a big crowd this year. But he said it's mainly returning fans and new fans that watch the Netflix series. That's how they've managed to gauge it when they've been selling the tickets. So it's definitely had a big impact on this side of the pond. Um, and as you say, in Canada as well, I've seen like some new motorsport websites popping up and that sort of thing. There's clearly uh, a greater interest to come off the back of that. Um, but yes, I mean, I think we're going to talk about uh, Renault and Racing Point a bit later and the protest going on there. Um, but we've had it with jokes that some people are saying, oh, Renault might have an illegal car and they're, they're still only like fifth in the championship. What's going on there? But it just shows these cars are just incredible. When, and when you get up close and you see them up close, you watch someone like Kubica who's been having a tough season, but you're still watching trackside and it's, it's mind-blowing what they can do and how close to the walls they're getting and how quick they're going. And all of that kind of gets overlooked just because it's based on a competitive order and you, you know, basically everyone's cheating at some level, um, just trying not to get caught, uh, even the slowest cars. But the, those two seconds seem like a lifetime in a sporting context, but when you see the car in isolation and the, the effort, as you say, the, the money, the time, the care, everything that goes into just putting them out on the track in the first place is phenomenal. So that's why it's got to be, a, the sport needs to offer up a little bit more than just running around in 19th and 20th. And, and all you can aspire to is maybe being two laps down and, and best of the rest as such. It needs to be a little bit more open for everyone. Yeah. And, you know, we were at the Racing Point launch earlier this year in uh, in February in Toronto, and we were right, right up close with the car and you, you're just mesmerized that it was, you know, I was never that close to a Formula One car before. And you're looking at this fighter jet on four wheels essentially and how amazing it is and all the little intricate bits in the front wing and the rear wing and to see all that development the money that goes through on the car and just talking to some of the fans there at the event that really didn't watch formula one all that often but they're just blown away by what the car looks like and like you said it's hard to believe that you know if you or i were to get in that williams right now we'd be blown away at the speed and the downforce and like you said they're only 19th and 20th so 
but I think it all ties into what we're talking about, right? Improving the show. It, we got a big fan base, obviously, in Europe, but to extend more into North America, I think being able to improve that show, some of the great races that we've had this year, like Germany, for example, that does well in growing the sport in this area as well. So hopefully with the, the 2021 regulations, that's sort of the, the direction that we can go toward. Yeah, exactly. And there's, I think, a bit of a misconception with some fans probably in Europe, but certainly around the world that are not in North America, that are kind of a little bit put out by the fact that there's this focus on trying to grow the sport over here in, in America and in Canada and in, in this region. But it's not that by doing that, it's going to alienate anyone else. It's that there's a way of appealing to you know, a huge market over here that will appeal to everyone else as well. And, and there's a uh, you know, big IndyCar following over in Europe. But the time zone doesn't make it quite so easy. But people who watch both talk about the great racing in IndyCar. They they appreciate great racing in every category. If you get it in Formula One, they're not going to be complaining. You're not going to find European fans going, oh, I don't like this. Any one of 10 teams could win. No, they're going to, they're going to love it. So it, it's doing it the right way and not creating a, a different sport as such. And that's where this the whole argument that we've talked about already about keeping the DNA a little bit intact to make sure that there's differentiation between the cars, that sort of thing. That's why it's so important, because otherwise you do just get IndyCar sort of Mark II, and, and there's not room for that as such. You know, Formula One needs to stay in its own little area. Um, but yeah, it, it will appeal to, to everyone, and, and that is where we've got this big opportunity now. And at the very least, if it doesn't happen now, I'm not too disheartened, because this has all been building up. We've seen huge research from Liberty's sort of uh, team they put together within Formula One, and it's all come since Liberty took over, and they've invested heavily. Maybe shareholders won't be delighted at the returns that they're getting right now, but what they're looking at is how can they make the sport more attractive globally? How can they make it stronger for the future? How can they make it a better product? And you don't do that overnight, because if you did, everyone would have done it already. So it's just a, a positive sign to see they're willing to invest, willing to put in this effort. And even if it doesn't happen immediately, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to stop trying. They'll, they'll, they'll keep working at it. Yeah, and just recently, I believe last week was announced that Miami and, and Liberty and, and, and F1 have agreed, as it seems like for, for a race, I think they were targeting 2021. So, I mean, Miami, obviously a massive market, um, you know, that, that could be a, a huge, huge revenue for, for F1 and Liberty as well. So I, I'm, what are you hearing for, for that race? If it were to happen, would that be added then to the 2021 calendar? Uh, yeah, 2021 was where they were aiming for I think it was uh, in April actually that they mentioned or maybe even May it was, it was quite early in the season um, so it didn't look like it would quite fit back to back with Canada because Monaco always has to be uh, that last weekend in May but uh, it, I'm not quite sure logistically how they're going to line it up um, so then again we might see a shake up in the way they organise the races anyway because they've been talking about the, the new weekend schedule that they'd like to try and impose but yeah 2021 was the target um, it's, it's looking close I think the vote's next week on, on um, locally whether they want to approve it or not um, but it's clearly been something that they've worked really really hard on and uh, Sean Bratches um, the commercial director is going to be leaving Formula 1 at the end of the year and I think this is one of those things he really wanted to get over the line before he goes so I, I think in an ideal world if they can get that vote across the line next week that means in the build up to, to Austin when everyone's in the US and focused on the US and North America we're going to be talking about a new race there and hopefully from that point of view as well with COVID the timing would work because the two races would be separate in the calendar. They'd be at opposite ends, and it would mean that they don't impose too much on each other. Uh, and I, I don't see a problem with them doing it that way if, if it protects the races. Sometimes I do think the scheduling isn't ideal with the amount of hopping around that teams and drivers have to do uh, just because certain 
events that are trying to defend against other ones. But when we race in Europe, everywhere you can drive between, everywhere's close. Um, and, and fans go to multiple races. So I think it's sometimes ever played where you don't want to have a, you know, when they're talking about not having Montreal and Austin back to back, I mean, that they're a long way apart. I think we've got enough fans here that can sustain both, uh, you know, next to each other if needed. But they'll, they'll look at it if that comes together. But yeah, it looks like 2021 could well happen. There's other races that are maybe a bit more questionable. Spain, I think it's just going to be a one year extension. Um, to then see if they can do another deal on top of that. Um, but that one's a little bit rocky. Obviously, Germany's dropping off next year. There's a few European races that are, that are up in the air um, and that still have to be confirmed or, or or otherwise. So I think there's going to be space if we stick even with 22. But uh, if they then change the way the, the weekend format works, I think they're willing to go up to 24, 25 races. Wow. Wow, that would be crazy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a ton of races. Yeah. I remember not too long ago, uh, across the pond from where you are right now in New Jersey, there was uh, supposed to be a race and it just never materialized. Mm. Sorry, this is me being jet lagged. Um, <laughs> no worries. Yeah, Weehawk. Um, I, uh, I, saw, I saw the it's Port Imperial at Weehawk and where I, when I got my Uber in yesterday, I was kind of looking around trying to see it. Um, it would have been very cool with the skyline. But again, the, the actual area it was around wasn't the greatest. But then that's the balance. You know, do you want to be racing right in downtown Manhattan, which would be cool, but on TV, all you're going to see is cars next to big buildings. You're not going to get to see kind of the impressive skyline. Similarly, that's what Miami was trying to do with that downtown uh, location that they first targeted was to get somewhere where it would show off the skyline in the city rather than be racing around somewhere that doesn't really allow you to do that. Sadly, it's just so hard to, to close down the center of any city and I think that's even what they found here in New Jersey was that to get the money involved and to get people on side in that area um, that were going to be willing to have that disruption to, to build a circuit and to, to close the roads they just they just never go off the ground in that sense so it's not just about the money it's it, you know it can easily be blocked for other reasons and that's what we've got with Miami right now the money's clearly there um, Stephen Ross with all the money he's got available to him like he's going to fund the whole thing essentially um, that's not going to be a problem it's just whether businesses, communities around it are going to be willing to let it happen with the legislation that has to go through. I think it's a good timing for them, though, because earlier this year they moved the tennis tournament, the ATP 1000 Series event from Crandon Park to Dolphin Stadium, and it was a big success there as well. So I think this is perfect timing for, for you know the owners of the Dolphins as well as City of Miami. So uh, it seems like it'll pass through. But one of the things also that was discussed for 2021 and, and actually was uh, proposed also for next season was reverse grid qualifying. And now it's my understanding that it won't happen next year. They were planning trialing it at three different races. Um, even though it's not happening in 2020, 2020 next season, are they looking at it still for 2021? I think, yeah, that's something that's much more ongoing rather than, I mean, 2021 is the year we keep talking about because it's the end of the current like commercial agreements, the end of the current technical regulations. There's a lot of opportunity to change there. And probably the commercial agreements are at the heart of it. You need to get the teams to find new ones, but then to agree to things like the budget cap, and to the future of the sport, essentially. So that's why it's been a big threshold. But things like the race weekend schedule is something that they're actually looking at as a little bit more freely. Next year was going to be, yeah, three trial races. I think it was in France, um, Belgium, and then in Russia as well. They were going to do those three. But... The teams pushed back on that and weren't, weren't particularly happy about it. I'm not too sure that the fact that they got turned down at this stage means it won't happen at all because the F1 and the FIA could push it through if they really wanted to. Whether they're willing to upset the teams that much, I'm not too sure. Um, but it shows that they're just evaluating new ideas and 
if they're going to make changes, they're saying we need to we need to experiment and we need to basically test them out first. We're not going to just say, okay, in 2021, we're going to have a reverse grid at every race because it might not work. You don't you don't want to look stupid. So they're saying, right, we want to try it in a few occasions. Maybe it could be when they start looking at uh, testing, they'll go, right, final day, testing. we're going to do a five-lap reverse grid race. You know, that sort of event, just something to kind of look and to see if they can get the team to open up the possibility of doing it. But it is tricky because I understand one of the other reasons for the teams is if you've got a, a title battle, you know, and you, you've built a car for the season as you normally do, so normal qualifying, normal race, and you've got a really close title battle, and then we get to Russia late in the year and suddenly you've got a reverse grid thing that, that causes an incident or just doesn't fit for somebody. It's, it's a bit more of a random element that's going to impact on things. And I, I can see why there'd be um, a bit of pushback on that too. But it, it could be forced through still if, it, if um, the sort of government, governing body really wanted to. I just don't think they're going to do that at this stage. But it, it certainly will stay on the table. Maybe 2021 will come too soon. I think they're more likely to have made changes to the sort of schedule of the weekend. So it's something that they've been talking about is the Friday becomes both media day and practice day. So at the moment, you have media day on the Thursday, no track running, but everyone talks. Uh, and then two, day, two, two practice sessions Friday. They're now talking about doing all the PR and media Friday morning, practice Friday afternoon, um, which means everyone can arrive a day later. And I think that's more likely to come through. Let that settle down for a year or two and see how that works. And then go, okay, how else can we spice up Saturday now? Because if you condense it all a little bit, hopefully it makes things a little bit more exciting anyway. But if they still feel they want to make changes to Saturday's work, then then maybe it'll be you know, 2021 or even beyond 2022, 2023. So it's, there's a lot of uh, a lot of scope there. That's not something that had to be done instantly, but it's something that they want. And from a personal point of view, I, I actually quite like the idea because qualifying is really cool. Great to see the cars on the limit in low fuel. But if you line the cars up in pace order, you're more likely to give yourself a possession rate. So I do feel it sort of um, hurts the spectacle of the race on a Sunday a little bit. You can't expect to get great racing each time if you put everyone in the, in the order of speed because you know, the likelihood is that's how they're going to finish. So it, it's a it's a fine balance because it, it is the way everyone's always been, the way motor racing has always been. But uh, in the technically what is a sprint race over over two hours one pit stop, there's there's not much that can really go wrong in that time. So if you do line them up in that order, you're kind of limiting the possibility. Yeah, it's definitely interesting, and I would like to see it first in order to get uh, you know a more more of an opinion on it because it could be really exciting. It could also go the other way. I think one of the things that uh, we suggested after the kind of qualifying farce in Monza in Q3 was to kind of do it how they did in the old school days, which was just one car at a time, and you go out for one one time lap, you know, with just only one uh, one out lap, and that would also maybe be another way to kind of build a drama and and we get to focus on just that one car and qualifying because a lot of the times I feel that we we sometimes miss a really good lap from Hamilton or from Verstappen or from Vettel because we're focusing on whoever was the first runner that was out in in Q3 so you know I think like you said a lot of these things uh it maybe just needs to be tested which is why that for 2020 maybe it wouldn't have been a bad idea to kind of test it at two or three race weekends to see how it is and then go from there yeah I, I personally think one thing that we're lacking is non-championship races I think we should just have one or two a year that don't aren't part of the championship. Maybe a, a venue that's dropped off that might want to come back that doesn't have to pay so much for it. Maybe make it free to wear television, whatever, uh, and you experiment there. And you just kind of have something that's a bit more of an exhibition. But uh, for the drivers, it might be a bit more relaxed, a bit more fun. 
Um, yeah, there's some great European venues. There can be some new North American venues or, or even some of the Asian ones like Malaysia that's dropped off recently that might host it. You could maybe have a different, different venue each year. And if you did one or two of those, then you say, okay, this is where we're going to try a reverse grid. This is where we're going to, you, you don't even have to set those rules until the week before the race because it doesn't impact on the championship. So as long as you can make it financially viable, um, then I'd, I'd have thought that would work quite well. But the problem is if you want to do that, you're taking up more weekends in the season. Um, and that's then going to hurt the teams when they're trying to crowd in more and more races. So it, it's, it's, there's no easy answers to any of it, but I do feel like the, the non-championship event would allow a bit more experimentation where the teams might be more willing to do it because, you know, realis- realistically, they know the penalty isn't going to be so great. I think that's a great idea. Kind of do it like in other sports where you have an all-star game, you know, in the NBA or uh, in the NHL, NFL as well. They kind of do a mid-season all-star game and it's no pressure. It's kind of just a show for the fans. And I, I think that would be a brilliant idea. That would be super exciting to see. Yeah, it'd be cool. And, and you could maybe add a you know, third car in it or something so junior drivers would get a chance or yeah. something like that. But obviously, it, it all costs money. This is the problem. And, yeah. and you know, Formula 1 is such an expensive sport that what you'd have to do in those cases is make sure it was going to actually turn a profit for the teams if they did it. Um, may, maybe that's why as a one-off, you know, the race fee would be quite high, but it means it's a profit for the teams. The circuit only has to commit to one year. You know, you could get a, good, a new sponsor in just for that one event. It, it could work quite nicely, but again, it's just finding time. Yeah, definitely. So last couple of things from me, we kind of move uh, on to uh, the 2019 season. And we mentioned this before, Racing Point and Renault, the uh, protests that Racing Point lodged against Renault. What, what's the status of that uh, following the Japanese Grand Prix? Uh, so it's still pending, essentially. Um, we got this release on the Sunday night that explained that Racing Point's appeal or um, protest was admissible, as they say. And it was th- the team had submitted a 12-page document. They had a pretty serious um, kind of case that they were trying to put against Renault. And this was submitted to the FIA. They looked at it and said, yep, there's, there's grounds here for you to at least make this protest. So Renault then, uh, and Renault agreed. Renault were sort of asked, you know, do you disagree with that or not? And they said, no, nope. you know, they've gone through the right channels. They've, um, that, you know, it's clearly, they're clearly serious. They're not just, you know, gambling and just said, we think this is wrong, which is people are complaining about the Ferrari engine at the moment. They're not too sure whether the power unit is fully legal or they're trying to work out how they're getting such great performance, but no one can put their finger on it. So you can't just say, we think that's illegal and protest without having any grounds for it. You have to really have a, a reason for that protest and, and Racing Point did. Uh, but in that document that came out from the FIA that said, um, yeah, we think this is admissible, they also said it, you know, it's a serious allegation and it's a technical matter. So they impounded some of the parts they needed to see, but they also said, we're going to get uh, a full kind of review of this. We want to have a, a complete look at uh, basically what's being alleged, but also, you know, what, what it would entail to investigate this and gather this whole document essentially, uh, as the governing body that we can then work with to then hear the protest because Otherwise, you just sit there and it's, he said, she said, and Renault are trying to defend themselves against anything the Racing Point says without knowing what's coming yet. The FIA don't know what's coming, so they then need to verify each bit of information. So, so basically, right now, an investigation of sorts is ongoing. Uh, and once uh, like a report is prepared by the FIA, then they will say to the teams, right, we're ready. We've got a report ready. We're, we're happy that we've looked at this matter uh, enough that we can now talk about it and, and hear your protest. So we're still waiting for that that final part to, to happen and then the team to get told right we're going to we're going to host this protest um on this date we're going to have a hearing it'll be in paris i think that um that they'll host it maybe geneva one of the two and uh then this protest will be properly heard probably in front of lawyers and uh, 
and a lot of legal jargon will be used and it'll go on for hours and essentially at the end of the day they'll say whether the car's legal or not. Um, what's quite interesting about it is because it's uh, ECU related it should be possible to work out when and where this uh, essentially illegal software has been used um, or the way that Renault set their car up has been illegal. Um, so they could actually be able to pick out specific races where it was running illegally and sort of backdate any penalty which would be very interesting but at the same time, if Rano can prove that or find a loophole that says it's legal or that they won't break any rules, then they can get off. And this is something that all teams do. They push push the boundaries massively everywhere in the hope, essentially, that they won't get caught. Um, but they also normally know how they would defend themselves if they were caught up on it. And, and they're all doing it. It's just when they can find something that they feel is, is across the line and that they can prove it, that's when they appeal each other. It seems like it's a little bit more serious than what you mentioned on the Ferrari power unit side because teams are just sort of kind of questioning it. They're not exactly sure what they're doing. And I think the FIA necessarily doesn't want to reveal what they're doing because then it could be a competitive disadvantage for Ferrari as well. But with Racing Point lodging the 12-point document, that doesn't seem like something you just do overnight. This seems like it could have been kind of in the works for a couple races because with the electronic brake bias system, that, that's a potentially huge uh, advantage in race, in race pace, also qualifying as well. So was there any word of this before the, the Japanese Grand Prix result? No, it's quite a funny one, actually. It was uh, We were sat in a briefing with Michael Marty um, after the race, talking about all the different penalties and non-penalties and you know, why the race was ended a lap early, why we had um, the penalty for Leclerc or the ones that we didn't have, why Vettel didn't get a jump start penalty. This was all going on. And then um, suddenly Johnny Noble um, stuck his hand up, uh, one of the famous journalists for Motorsport Network, and just said, um, can you tell us what's going on with Racing Point and Renault? And... I don't believe he knew the detail himself at the time, but someone had said, hmm, somebody's kicked off here. And, and Marty just said, uh, no, I can't. But that was enough. That, that the way he said it, the way he looked, yeah. it said, yeah, yeah, there's something serious that's come up. And um, yeah, there'd been no words in the FIA. Normally you get whispers when you're in the paddock and somebody will say, oh, this is happening, that's happening. One of the teams might drop you a hint. Um, certainly, even if you were just down at Renault, you'd see, or oh, people are looking nervy, or, you know, why is uh, Alan Pemain going to the stewards? You know, what's going on? you normally pick up on these things and there's not been a hint of it beforehand that I'd seen or heard of. Um, and suddenly it was, uh, it dropped. We were then aware because of that question had been asked. We were then aware something looked like it was going on, but again, didn't know what. And, and then got the protest sort of confirmation through. We're like, wow, that's, um, that's a pretty serious allegation to make. Mainly, like, as you say, to have the document all prepared. It wasn't kind of like the Renault and Haas issue that occurred in Monza last year where it was one part of the car, clearly illegal, uh, based on something that all the teams have been discussing and going through, and um, there was talk of a gentleman's agreement that the the floor needed needed to be changed by a certain deadline, and if anyone needed a bit longer, they'd get away with it. Right. Um, that was one where th- that had been brewing that none of us knew about as such. Once once the appeal hit, um, you just go ask your team, they'd be like, "Yeah, this was talked about, and uh, you know, we didn't think it was going to come to this, but um, it it was on people's radar." This this protest hadn't been. Nobody had uh, nobody had mentioned it. Nobody came out afterwards and said, "Yeah, we thought about doing that." Um, it just seems to be racing point that we're ready to go. Oh, wow. It's going to be very interesting because, I mean, if they are found to be in breach of, of the regulations, is is it possible they could be banned from the season or just maybe the, the following races where they've used this technology, those results get thrown out? I mean, it's, uh, like you said, it's, it's very serious. Yeah, it is. It's actually something that's, um, the rule book's wide open on this one. The FIA can do whatever they want. Their, their penalties can range from absolutely nothing, um, or slap on the wrist or a financial fine to get out the championship. 
um, keep them out for the season. So I think it's one of those where it's serious enough that we could see, you know, sort of exclusions from pass races or even fans moving forward. Um, I, I think that might be something that Renner will be working on as well. If, if they do feel they've crossed the line in certain places, they might be trying to make it seem not quite as bad as it was so that they may get a financial fine or um, a financial penalty or they only sort of get their results taken away from a certain race. They can kind of cover certain things up. So yeah. it, will be, it will be a really sort of complex argument that will be going on once we get that hearing. And I imagine if Renault gets punished, and certainly if he gets punished severely, then there'll be an appeal as well to try and uh, retain that because as with all regulations, there's always grey areas. There's always ways of interpretation and, and trying to rip your way out of it. So um, that's something that the teams are so, so good at, essentially, is, is trying to turn something that's completely illegal and, and find a way of not getting penalised for it. For sure. And I guess one of the last ones for me, uh, the, the driver market for, for 2020, we've got most of all the drivers confirmed, but obviously one of the big stories, Nico Hulkenberg still without a drive for 2020. Any word, does it look like he'll have any chance with Alfa Romeo or does it look like Hulkenberg will be gone from F1 for next season? So I think that there's still a chance of Alfa Romeo while that seat hasn't been confirmed yet because uh, Fred Vasseur is clearly a fan of Hulkenberg. He actually was at Renault when they signed Hulkenberg, so he oh, brought him into that team before he then before he then left uh, and then ended up at Alpha. And Giovinazzi is flattered to deceive a little bit during the season. There's been some spells that have been really good, some that haven't been great. The car clearly hasn't been easy to drive because we look at some of the more recent results. He's actually managed to qualify Kimi, uh, and Kimi's been complaining about how the team haven't got the car quite right recently. Uh, he hasn't always brought the the final result um, at the end of it, but then nor Kimi in the last few races either. It, it, they haven't been picking up the points. So uh, it's a bit of a tough time for Giovinazzi to be judged for right now. Uh, but it's, it was moments like Spa when you know, there was points there for the taking. He'd done a good job two laps in the end and he, and he basically takes a corner quicker than he had at any other point and throws it in the wall. Uh, completely unnecessary. That, 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 you don't sort of forget that as a team boss. You get annoyed by those moments. And when there's a really safe pair of hands in Hulkenberg available, you might want to work with him. But it will partly come down to what Ferrari wants to do as well because... The impact that they have on Alfa Romeo means if they really want Giovinazzi to stay in there, I think he will. That looks like it's kind of the, the battle that's going on right now is Bonotto saying we'd like Giovinazzi to stay in that seat. Vasseur saying we'd like to uh, potentially bring Hulkenberg in or at least talk to him about it. Uh, and then you've got the financial side of it, how much are you willing to pay him? Because they're obviously going to be paying Kimi a fair bit of money. It's his only shot, really. I think Williams just financially can't can't pay Hulkenberg to take that seat. They need uh, Latifi essentially to come in there with his backing. Done a good job in F2 this year. Done a good job as their uh, third driver. Uh, got the super license points. Or I think he's guaranteed them now, even though the season hasn't finished. But regardless, after Abu Dhabi, he should have the super license points uh, in, all locked up so that he can take that drive. And with where Williams are right now, that's what they need. They need to rebuild. So they need financial backing that that brings. And also, there's nothing wrong with having a, a young driver when they're now happy with uh, what Russell brings to the table and, and his level, then it could be that Latifi shines in that car and, and really really does well in F1. And if he doesn't, then you're going to benefit from the financial side of things. So uh, that makes complete sense and, and really shuts that door, I think, Valkenberg there. As nice as it would have been for him to go back to the team he started his F1 career with. So just after a mayor, I think, he, um, he turned down an IndyCar opportunity. Zach Brown did uh, approach him to say, look, I'd love to have you in the McLaren and IndyCar. Uh, would you be interested? And he was like, no, uh, I, I don't like ovals. I don't want to do ovals. And, and Zach never said to him, um, you know, well, what about just a road course deal? But he said he doesn't want someone who does just a road course. He says, 
their lineup has got to be drivers that will do the whole season because you've got to go for the championship. So um, whether Hulkenberg will change his mind without a drive remains to be seen because sadly something like uh, Weck, where he obviously went and won at Le Mans, isn't quite the uh, category it was and you've only really got Toyota in there at the moment. That will change moving forward, but right now it's not an attractive option for him. So maybe that means he'll, he'll look at IndyCar, but yeah, I think it's basically Alfa Romeo or nothing for him. I'm glad you brought up Nicholas Latifi as well. That was going to be my next question. Obviously, Canadian driver for us, so we're following him very closely and would be great for us to have another Canadian driver on the grid as well. And he'll get three more uh, FP1 sessions, I believe, to, to finish off this year. So that seems like because he's got a big sponsor that he bring into the team. So that kind of just follows the what Williams have been doing the last couple of years, obviously with Lance Stroll and then Robert Kubica with his sponsor that he's brought in this year. But like you mentioned, I would agree. I think that driver partnership with the two young guys, George Russell, Nicholas Latifi, would be really good. And F1 seems to be moving along that, that road right now of trusting the younger drivers. We've seen it at Red Bull, at Ferrari even now. So maybe that would be something good for Williams in order to develop their car for the future to go with youth and uh, two drivers that would be r- right up there, I think, with uh, with some really good drivers. Yeah, I, th- I think it would be a tip of the cap to Russell as well. It would be a sure faith in him that they're willing to have him as technically what you'd call the lead driver in the sense that he'd have a year's racing experience for them. And they're willing to, to then back his experience to help him still move forward because that was one of the reasons they put Kibitzer in was that his engineering side of things, you know, the way he worked with the team behind the scenes, they were really impressed with it and they felt they had a long way to go to get back to the field. As it turned out this year, they had even further to go than they realised. So, <laughs> um, obviously that relationship's gone a little bit sour now and a fresh start I think would be good for them. It would take the pressure off. I think, you know, um, with complete respect to the TT, people wouldn't expect him to pull up trees. They wouldn't, probably wouldn't expect him to beat George. Um, but he's clearly good enough with everything he's shown there too, that he, he's certainly deserving of a spot on the grid to show what he can do. Uh, but again, the pressure would be off. So that would work well both for the driver and for the team. And I think it would just be a, a good fit. And, and you never know how it works. You, you see quite a few drivers. Um, I always try and wait to judge them until they reach F1 because you see some great drivers in junior categories and they just can't convert it into Formula One performances. Tony Oliuzzi was a big example of it. He was amazing in go-karts, very good in junior uh, categories, got to Formula 1 and, and struggled. Uh, same with Sopel Van Dorn. I mean, who'd have thought that after he dominated in what was GP2 that he'd have any trouble when he reached that one, but he really, really struggled in it. It massively hurt his career. Um, now he's looking a little bit more com- comfortable and confident now he's uh, doing Formula E. And he's looked good when he's done wet as well. So these drivers... They don't become bad drivers when they jump in an F1 car, but sometimes it just doesn't suit them. The environment doesn't or the car doesn't. But for others, it does. And they can look sort of less than spectacular in the junior categories. And then suddenly they get in an F1 car and, and it clicks and, and it works for them. So, um, yeah, I think it would be a, a really good opportunity for the TV. And I, I hope he does get it because uh, he does deserve it. And he would bring, as we said, yeah, the finance is important too to the team. Um, and it's something that Lance Stroll always felt had a, a bad rep for. You know, he won everything he could in the build-up. Probably got promoted to F1 a bit too soon. Yeah. But even then, you know, he's shown he can pull out some really good results um, when the opportunities are risen. He's, he's had that podium. He's had that front row start. You know, he can clearly drive a car very quickly and he's still developing. Uh, but also, if you bring the financial side of things, you can help sustain the team and keep it moving forward. And that sh- shouldn't be overlooked because if you can do that as a driver, you're offering more than just your driving performances. Uh, and, and that's crucial. Yeah, it definitely does get overlooked, though, because, I mean, we, we always try and, and defend that side of Lance Stroll about the fact that, you know, he does deserve that spot in F1. And yes, he does have, obviously, that financial backing with his dad, but he is a very talented driver 
front row at Monza, like you said, the podium in Baku. And this year at Racing Point, he's had a pretty decent year and is coming on really strong since the summer break. So I think I'm really looking forward to what he can do. And yeah, he came into the sport very young, like you said, but I think that partnership with him and Sergio will be really good for the future. So, but I guess you're just always going to have those haters online, especially that are going to always bring that part up. Yeah, I think people overlook the fact that what they want is the 20 best drivers in the world in Formula 1 cars. And one, it's very hard to work out exactly who the best 20 are. There's no obvious benchmark where they're all in the same car at the same time to work that out. Uh, But secondly, that means that if they feel like someone isn't one of the best 20, then they immediately start talking them down. But they're they're in the best 30 or the best 40. They're still so, so talented, so, so good. And we're talking, you know, tenths of seconds. As you mentioned, like, Stroll's weakness this year has been qualifying, but quite often he's been within, there's been, it must have been about five times a season, he's been within a tenth or two of, of Perez in qualifying. And the difference has been that Perez has advanced out of Q1, Stroll hasn't, everyone said Stroll's terrible. And then Checo's gone on to put it in Q3 because the, the circuit evolved and, and the car was good enough to do that. Uh, but then when Lance has made it through, he's, he's looked good. And his race performances have been really impressive as well, like you say. So um, it, it's easy to sort of, point to money as a, as a problem as such or uh, as something that then means a driver isn't as good as they could be but um, talent is what attracts money and the whole reason that they've got there is through heavy backing you know maybe it's family backing maybe it's corporate backing but it's because people see that it's an investment worth making that they're going to get a return on and it, it's the same with even the best drivers I mean that's why you pay the biggest money to the best drivers that's why people like Fernando Alonso brought big sponsors with him wherever he went because they want to be associated with talent so uh, it just goes hand in hand, it's all varying degrees, but everyone's very similar in that sense. And like you said, I think they get a bit of an unfair rap sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's well said, though. You know, talent, talent does attract the money. But again, you can't blame if you have that scenario where you have all that money. You know why not invest in an F1 team? And I know on the outside it looks bad with with, with him being, uh, you know, obviously Lawrence's son and that he's driving. But I, I think the the bad rap really came because Esteban Ocon eventually lost that seat uh, for for this year. So that's kind of the negative of it. But maybe that's why we need uh, more teams also in F1. It would solve that problem. Big time, big time. And and if you look in the past when we did have lots of teams and, and other small seats and such that were available, people could basically just buy them and you did get a much bigger spread of talent in the field um, and I think that was good for making sure that the best talent didn't miss out but the downside is you know it wasn't always people that were deserving that then those seats as well so it, it's always it's an age-old problem it's always been the same it's an expensive sport and it, it's just the way it, it kind of falls for sure for sure well, I, th- I think that's about all the, the questions I had. I think we covered mostly everything uh, in this interview. And uh, you're on your way, obviously, to, to Mexico for, for this weekend's race. Uh, are you uh, looking forward to it? Obviously, Mexico, another race that returned just in the last couple of years. Uh, are you looking forward to the race this weekend? Yeah, I love that one. It's, it's a really cool atmosphere there. Um, we're lucky with where the paddock is. It's right by the stadium section, the Forest Hall. So you can hear the crowd if you're, if you're outside. You can, you can see how thick it's so big. Um, it's a really good atmosphere that that place has. And we've had some dramatic races recently. I mean, the last couple have been really good. I mean, Lewis has wrapped up the title there, but not been winning the race each time because, you know, Mercedes tends to struggle. Um, but yeah, we've had, had some good drama there and it's, uh, it's normally a good one. So really looking forward to that. And then straight on to Austin, which is always a highlight as well. So this is a really, a really good time of the year. It's a shame that we don't have a really hard title fight right now. Um, that would have been great. But I, I think that we're likely to at least see it roll on to, to Austin because uh, Mercedes probably are not going to be quickest uh, in, in Mexico and if they are I think Bottas is driving well enough that 
he won't lose 14 points to Lewis. So I think it'll, it'll rumble on a bit longer as well. And just quickly, do you think Red Bull will have uh, any chance this weekend? Mexico has been good for them. Max winning, obviously, the last two years. But they seem to be a little bit struggling more at the end of the year versus the past couple of years. But they've come on really strong at the end of the season. What, what do you think their chances are this weekend? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because uh, obviously it was actually a Renault was Mexico where they sort of lost out less compared to other power unit manufacturers when they went there. So obviously Red Bull don't have that this year, but Honda still performed well there last year. I think Gasly went from uh, back of the grid in the Toro Rosso to the points. So they're still fairly strong. I think Red Bull will be looking at it as a venue that they'll be more competitive than anywhere they have been since the summer break. But whether it's going to be quite enough, I'm with you, I think. Every race they've gone to where they've expected to really challenge, they haven't quite managed to. And I think it might be a similar scenario here where they're going to be in the mix. But I think Ferrari are probably going to be the ones to beat with. That long straight is huge and, and the speed they can carry on to it. Uh, it's really going to work for them, I think. Well, Chris, I really appreciate your time. I, I enjoyed this conversation and uh, you know, I enjoy watching you uh, on the Netflix series. Um, hopefully you're going to be on it this year again for season two. Uh, fingers crossed, yeah. We've done a bit of filming, but it's something that they can obviously change. You know, They can't fix the drivers or the team bosses. They, they're left with those and have to work with those. So uh, myself and Will and, and any media, they can sort of pick and choose who they might want to have on it. So we'll see at the end of the year if we still do that. But uh, they've been doing plenty of really cool filming, whatever happens. And uh, yeah, myself, I'm always looking forward to seeing what they come up with. Yeah, well, hopefully you are included because I think you and Will uh, added a lot of value to that series to, to the non-fans and, and even to the, the hardcore fans, you guys were, were a great addition. And if people want to read your articles, if they want to uh, follow your work, uh, how, how can people reach you? Uh, so they can read my articles mainly on racer.com. Um, so over here in North America, big website. Uh, and if they want to follow me or anything, I'm on Twitter as F one and Instagram as Chris Medlin. Uh Yeah, as you mentioned at the moment, it's uh, sports pictures from New York because when I'm not working, I'm been watching too much sport but i love it so off to uh, madison square garden later this evening to watch a bit of hockey and then down to mexico in the morning that's awesome that's awesome well chris thanks for for, for joining me today I, I really appreciate it and hopefully uh, we can talk to you soon again in the future yeah sounds good thank you very much really enjoyed it myself thanks all right take care yeah thank you